0: The WealthManagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisorinnovation. Okay, hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Advisor's Innovation Podcast, which, as you know, is my excuse to have informal, but hopefully informative, conversations with folks in the wealth management ecosystem who are moving the industry forward in new and interesting directions. And today, we're talking to Anders Jones, the co-founder and CEO of Facet Wealth. Anders, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks
1: for having me. Excited
0: to be here. It's great. Uh, You know, first, I think we've met a few times in the past, but I think the first time we met, I think was lunch somewhere in Midtown uh, with some wealth management folks, probably around Mm -hmm. 2016, 2017, uh, your company had just launched. I think it was just the four of you, three or four of you in Baltimore thinking about this new model for financial advice, new model for bringing uh, uh, clients in. At the time, as I recall, you had a business model that was a bit different from where you are now, as I understand it, but maybe you could just go back and give us a little bit of the origin story of uh, uh, Facet Wealth. Uh, how you started, and then we'll take it up from there and get to where you are today.
1: Absolutely. So I think as a starting point, just to kind of frame what we're building and and what we see the, the vision of the future as, we really see an opportunity to rebuild financial planning the way that it should be. And in particular, focus on the 40 million or so households that broadly defined, people refer to them as the mass affluent market, of uh, folks that don't uh, that, that have more uh, nuance and complexity in their financial life than what a uh, purely digital or DIY solution can help with, but at the same time, don't have the investable asset level uh, that's interesting to a traditional advisor. And the origin story actually came in the wake of the DOL fiduciary rule failing. And if you recall, a big part of the pushback around that from the industry was if you pass this you're going to have 8 million households that lose their advisor relationship because the advisor can't afford to both service them and act in their best interest at the same time. And I know that the argument was a little more nuanced than that, but that was sort of the broad strokes, especially for someone like me who's an industry outsider, or I guess I was at the time, you know, that, that was sort of the, the distillation of the, of the argument. And so that was sort of a real light bulb moment. I was like, wow, here's, here's a very sort of public admission that, you know, that there are existing clients that are not getting the best deal that they, that they could, you know, quote unquote, best execution from, from the existing sort of industry set. And there's, there's probably a real opportunity to, uh, to build a service that suits their needs. So, so that's what we, that's what we set out to do. And, and, you know, you said our our business models change. I would say our, our business model has actually always been the same. It's, you know, we we've we started out saying we're gonna build subscription-based, human-led tech enabled financial planning that looks at every aspect of someone's financial life and uh, and offer it to folks that sort of don't meet the minimums of traditional advisor. And and that's what we've been doing from from day one. I think what's changed for us is our go-to-market approach. When we started the company. We said well okay there 's a ready made market of eight million people who've opted into an advisor relationship and are not getting a good deal and frankly the, you know the industry doesn 't really want to service them anyways and uh, and so we can actually go and partner with other financial advisors and essentially buy part of their books and transition uh, those clients that aren 't a great fit for their service model over to facet that that made a ton of sense on paper, but in in reality when it actually came time to to uh, execute on it, it was much much harder to um, to, uh, to to pull off. So about three years ago, we made the shift to a much more sort of direct to consumer focused model that um, is consistent with where we are today. And you know, at this point, we're more than ten thousand clients, actually closer to more than eleven thousand clients. And uh, you know, we 10X the business in the last two years. So we're you know on on a pretty great trajectory from a, a scale standpoint.
0: Yeah, that's a it's a fantastic trajectory. I mean, the, the the growth over the past couple of years has been amazing, and and coming from like uh, uh, if I have to say, from someone who was in the industry a, a little longer, uh, there was some skepticism early on. I think when you guys first came around, I think some of the the long legacy players in the industry were skeptical that uh, this band of outsiders could. Could, could pull it off. And you know you say that your client acquisition strategy changed, your go-to-market strategy changed, and I get that, I understand. At the time, it seemed very innovative to go and to pick these clients off whom a traditional financial advisory firm was losing money on, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I'm surprised to hear you say that that didn't really work out because you're right, on paper, it does make a lot of sense. What was the roadblock there?
1: I think the challenge was you'd have a... Uh, well, I, I, there are a few things. One is the... Uh, the level of sophistication with financial advisors just in sort of understanding the the uh, the PLs of their own businesses varies widely. You have know, some that are very sophisticated, you have know, some that we literally had to sit there and explain this is what gross margin is. Well um, this, so yeah,
0: that, probably more in the latter camp than in the
1: former camp. I'm I I won't I I, <laughs> I won't comment that on one. that. I'll take there that. There you one. go. There you go. So so there's a sort of wide range of of uh, sophistication. And so, sort of explaining the the economic and financial logic, that was actually a lot harder. There's much more of an education component there than we we had originally anticipated. I think you know the other thing is you know if you're an outsider looking in, you you read sort of the press around the a very active m and a market. And so we figured, oh, okay, this is great. We're walking into a very liquid, Market of buying and selling of books of businesses, it should be pretty easy to you know carve out a niche of sort of buying the the sort of smaller set of clients. What right. I didn't well, realize like is the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what I didn't realize is that you know yes, there are, there's a a large number of transactions, but the the those transactions sometimes take five years to actually put together. So uh, so the market is not nearly as liquid as it appears. And then the last piece I think is. That when it actually came time for an advisor to say, Yeah, I'm going to do this, when it actually came time for them to pick up the phone and call a client that they'd worked with for the last 10 years and say, Hey, I'm not going to work with you anymore. And by the way, meet facet, that that was probably the biggest roadblock that, you know, we actually signed up a lot of advisors to to kind of do the the partnership. But then when it actually when the sort of rubber met the road and they actually had to transition the clients over, that was a hard thing for for a lot of folks to do. And I think, you know, I think that actually speaks well to the advisor community because you know they they had developed real relationships with these folks and and you know even though it wasn't the economically rational thing to do they wanted to keep helping them
0: yeah and i think there was a perception that uh well this is just going to be an advisor trying to dump off the low end of their book onto a robo you know Mm -hmm. and and we'd seen some other technology companies try to come in and uh uh you know go to an ria space and and take over that role right be the be the robo inside that you know help uh service the the lower end clients, lower, I hate that word, but uh, for lack of a better word, lower end client uh, in a more efficient way. So you switched strategies, went to a, just a consumer-based strategy and that seemed to work. That seemed to take off. And, and, and that's the toughest thing to do in this industry, right? Uh, You know, a a client acquisition, no matter if you're a robo or a human advisor, whatever you are, the client acquisition strategy is the toughest one for advisory firms to, to handle. How did you do it?
1: Well, I think it starts with the fact that we're going after a market that no one else wants to service. You know, I, I said that, you know, we're, we're at 11,000 clients at this point. 75% of our clients, actually more than that, have never worked with an advisor before. So I think that there is a, a lot of the, the sort of existing advisor base really goes after a lot of the same clients. And so it's very, very competitive, especially when you're targeting sort of the million dollar plus market. It's, it's incredibly competitive there. You know, we're going at folks only about 50% of our clients actually have investable assets. You know, that, that sort of automatically disqualifies the other 50% for working with basically anyone else. And, you know, at the same time, I'll give you a, a sort of a sample profile of one of those clients is someone who just graduated from law school, maybe making, you know, mid six figures, has $70,000 of student debt, no real savings. They certainly have the, the capability to pay our annual planning fee and we can do a ton for them to help get them set up help them think about you know sort of entering the workforce starting a family putting some some roots down whatever it might be and you know we can provide real value there but there isn't really anyone else that they can that they can work with and, and do that so so I, you know I share that because really for us you know we're going after a, a relatively blue ocean opportunity and and it's interesting cuz you know there's a lot of discussion in the industry about you know, this is the sort of untapped uh, market that everyone is trying to crack the code on and no one, uh, you know, no one has figured out how to do it. And it's so funny to me, just the, the, the huge resistance to the subscription model or, or moving away from the AUM-based model is the thing that's, that's holding people back from servicing these folks. And I think as soon as people are more comfortable with a subscription-based or flat-fee model that's not tied to assets... Uh, all of a sudden, there's just a whole world of opportunity there that um, you know that, that could be unlocked by existing players, but no, no one is really willing to take that take that plunge.
0: Well, let me, I, I mean, I push back on that in just a little bit because uh, mm-hmm. I, I do think that there are uh, plenty of younger financial advisors in the RA space who are going down that road, right? I mean, we see the you know subscription models, uh, subscription for planning, recurring. Uh, uh, you know, fee-based, uh, uh, you know, whether it's a flat fee or a monthly fee or a retainer fee, whatever it is, uh, those models are in a sentence, right? There are more people taking up that uh, uh, challenge. But here's where I think the problem is, the, it's really hard to do that efficiently. You know, so if you're one advisor and you are uh, charging a, a subscription-based fee, you're capped on the number of clients you can have and, and work with effectively if you're doing a good job in a true planning model, you know, true, true planning for them. You guys seem to have solved that riddle or are or, or trying to, or, or or have made some great strides to it. Talk to me a little bit about your how many advisors you have, how efficient they are, how many clients they can service under this subscription model.
1: I think that's a fair point. I think that there's a, a sort of uh, a flywheel that kind of all has to work together. And the subscription fees are certainly a part of it. And how we charge is part of it. The other big component is our, our focus on cost reduction. <clears throat> and I think that you know, from the beginning, we, we sort of looked at the landscape of financial technology and wealth tech and sort of where the focus was on, on what was being pitched to advisors. And there's not a lot of discussion around how do we make you more efficient? How do we decrease your cost of service? It's much more focused around product distribution and, you know, other, you know, better ways of managing money and that sort of thing. But more service, sort of
0: the- more service, more service, right? More offers, more offers, more offers.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so I think that, you know, actually looking at, okay, the very unsexy Administrative workflows that actually take up a huge amount of advisor time. How do you automate those away? That's where we started. You know some interesting stats, and I'm sure you know a, a, different advisors will have different numbers here. But but on average, you know an advisor will spend about three hours of prep and wrap up time for every hour of client facing time, and and so you think about okay, only twenty five percent of their time is actually utilized in their highest and best use, which is. Time in front of the client, and the rest of it is very low low value added work. Things like going into a bunch of different systems and pulling data and building reports and doing a bunch of stuff that that is actually, when you sort of put your mind to it, very easy to automate. But you know, the vast majority of financial advisors are not software developers, and so you know the 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 idea of sort of putting together a system that can automate a lot of that, even if you strung together the best in class wealth tech products that are out there, very difficult to do. And so we approach it from a position of okay. We want 100% of our advisor time to be client-facing, and anything that's not human-to-human contact, we we should figure out how to automate. And that's really where we've focused the vast majority of our of our tech resources. So you asked about some sort of efficiency metrics. Um, you know, again, sort of industry average, roughly 75 clients per advisor. When ours are fully ramped, they're in the 220 to 250 range. So you know, so so almost four times as as productive. And, you know, for us kind of the prep and wrap up is five to 10 minutes and that's not, there's no quality degradation there. It's really just, we've, we've gotten rid of a bunch of the super low value added stuff. We've put all of their, their workflows into one centralized platform and, and, you know, everything from communication to actually building the financial plan to scheduling, whatever it might be, it all sort of lives within one place in our, in our platform. So that's, um, that that's been sort of the the other side of the of the coin that's allowed us to to service this market. So
0: you uh, I, I make it much more you know, easier for your advisors uh, uh, to run their sort of day to day life. Uh, another thing that you take away from the advisor is the getting clients, right? Yeah. What I understand from your model, you don't uh, the advisors themselves aren't out there beating the husks trying to get referrals and 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 prospect.
1: That's right. So again, you know, we we think the advisor's highest and best use is is time serving the client, not selling the client. So there's certainly a, a an efficiency component there. I think there's also a sort of positioning with the client piece there as well, which is, you know, we're we are going to be the client's unconflicted and transparent, fully transparent uh, resource. Right. We're we're never going to set ourselves up where we're making money off of a commission or any sort of product sale. You know, the only thing that uh, that our advisors get comped on in a variable sense is uh, client satisfaction and, and retention. So, uh, so, so we're really setting it up so that we can be, um, you know, sort of as as pure as possible in our in our client relationship. But yeah, we also, we have a separate team of folks that qualifies leads as they come in. I mean, at this point, you know, we're doing a ton of digital marketing, sort of everything you would expect to see in sort of a, a growing direct-to-consumer digital brand, search, social, affiliates, paid media, all that stuff. You know, we're probably getting, I don't know, two to 3,000 leads a day at this point. And we have a team of fifty or sixty folks that are qualifying those and putting them through a, a pretty rigorous uh, sales process to you know make sure that they're the right fit for us and we're the right fit for them and they have the um, you know that that we're we're really onboarding the right the right clients and matching them with the right advisors. But the end result of that is that yeah, the the advisors don't have to sell.
0: And I mean, I bump up against facet Wealth digital ads quite frequently, honestly. Uh, so I know you're oh, out good. there. Um, have you have
1: you? Are you a client? Are we, uh, no, are we just no. wasting spend on you right now? No, no. no, no, no.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm the wide part of the funnel. You know. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: how many advisors do you have right now?
1: we I believe, 104.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Where are you finding your advisors? Uh, you know, this is kind of interesting. I remember back when uh, you, you probably take some umbrage at this, but when Personal Capital uh, was kind of doing, I guess, something kind of similar. I don't know. Maybe you can describe maybe how you differentiate yourself from from some of the other robos with an advisor in the background, but they, I remember Personal Capital, they were quite happy to, to, you know, kind of talk about their advisors and and, uh, they were all CFPs. And and (coughs) where where are you finding your advisors? And These are all W2 employees.
1: Yep. All W2 employees, all all CFPs as well. I would say the the biggest source for us are places like Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, uh, hiring out of the call centers. You know, these are folks that have studied for three years to get their certification, have the the skills and ability to do sort of the full- Range of financial planning and are basically stuck answering an 800 number, doing asset allocation and what I would describe as sort of retirement planning light. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our our value prop to them is, hey, to come and, and work and really help people in a much deeper and broader way than what you do now. And also, you get to build your own book of clients. So you'll have a set of client relationships that you'll keep, as opposed to to sort of being on the other end of an 800 number. I think as we look out. In the future, and and think about sort of you know where are we going to continue to grow uh, our advisor base from? Some of the things that I get really excited about are building direct lines into undergraduate programs, and um, you know really kind of tapping into the the sort of up and coming advisors in the industry, and um, and and you know offering them opportunities early on, so we can sort of steep them in the in the facet way of of doing things.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Have you guys considered at all and you don't have to answer this, but uh, is, is there a, a process that you've built or a platform that you've built that could easily be white labeled and licensed out to other advisory firms?
1: We get asked that all the time. And I think the, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And there's there's two reasons. One is practical, which is that building a, a services business or, or a sort of consumer facing business, which is what we are, uh, versus building a SaaS business are two very, very different propositions. You know, for us right now, something breaks internally, you know, we have a hundred people who are uh, mildly inconvenienced, but we can typically get it fixed in an hour or two and, 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 you know, sort of, you know, life goes on. If we started selling software to advisors and all of a sudden something broke, there's a whole other set of issues that you open up around um, support and SLAs and, uh, you know, how are you going to kind of manage, manage that? And, and it, it just, it builds a totally different culture and a totally different cost structure than, um, you know, than what we're set up for now. I think more philosophically is that, you know, as we sort of think about what would, um, how would advisors use our platform? Chances are they would basically use it to make more margin on high net worth clients. It wouldn't, probably wouldn't, you know, sort of achieve the mission that we really set out to do, which is to really open up access and do financial planning in a different way for a huge part of the market that really needs it and doesn't have access to great options.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So recently a hundred million dollar equity raise. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. That yep. shows a lot of confidence, I think, uh, uh, from investors. What do you plan to do with the money? And I guess this question is sort of around, you know, what your future growth plans are. I think you spoke to one of our reporters and said, you know, you weren't necessarily going to use the money to buy or to hire more advisors and grow that way. Mm-hmm. You had other plans.
1: The the number one answer is is growth from a uh, it, it, from a customer perspective. We, we will likely double again this year from a, a client standpoint, uh, and we'll probably do it without really hiring any uh, net new advisors would be my guess. you know the, this is this is going to be a great year of us sort of fully realizing some of the efficiencies that we've created uh, that we made possible with the tech that that we've built over the last couple of years. so that's a that's exciting to kind of see it come to fruition at, at scale. So, so I'd say, you know, bucket number one just goes to customer acquisition and growth. You know, like I said, there's, we, we see it as a 40 million household market. We have 11,000 clients. We have a long ways to go. So there's always going to be room for, for more growth. And then the second is thinking about what is the consumer experience and the client experience look like we can build and, you know, really continue to, to differentiate. So I'll give you an example. Last year, we launched uh, tax and estate planning as uh two two sort of additional services that we offer to our client base so you know for 750 bucks a year we'll do your taxes and we'll do an annual estate plan review and that includes getting you set up with an estate plan if you don't already have one
0: well, then I'll the legal legal documents as well Will you
1: yeah yep and and we we have uh estate planning attorneys on staff now and and so you know we do everything up up to the point where you have to go get it notarized um and so, uh, you know, so, so for we, we offered that to a subset of our client base and had a, a tremendous uptake rate on that. So we've got now a couple thousand estate uh, plans and tax returns that, that we're working on. And we're going to learn a ton about how to do that well, both from an efficiency standpoint, but more importantly, from a, uh, how do we provide a great experience to our clients. And so I think for us, figuring out, okay, we're doing it very manually right now. How do we build that into a much more automated and integrated experience in our tech platform, not just for our team but for our for our clients as well? So it's almost this idea of like a, a digital family office for for our clients, which uh, you know, again, sort of going down the the sort of development path that we that that got us where we are now is we'll do it all manually first, which is what we're doing right now, and then in the next six months, we'll have a much clearer idea of. What the roadmap needs to look like to, to support that from an automated standpoint
0: it, it strikes me that you might also then and i know estate planning is not purely the purview of the high net worth client uh there's lots of reasons why mass effluent might use an estate plan however mm-hmm. uh it, it strikes me that maybe you are thinking about going up the uh net worth ladder perhaps a little bit And why not right i mean there's no reason why a high net worth client is not also interested in uh, a subscription-based plan more so than AUM-based investment man. And no reason why technology doesn't help serve them as efficiently as the mass affluent. Uh,
1: that is true for sure. I, I think I, I would point back to the the sort of the, the crowding of the market in the uh, in the high network space. Um, that It's going to be harder and harder to, to, to differentiate up there. I think what's more interesting to us is you know, our, our lowest annual fee right now is $1,800 a year. And so what can we build for $500 a year? Or what can we build as a one-off $150 offering for someone who is about to get married and just wants to get a quick gut check on the financial implications of getting married or of having a kid? So I think to the extent that you see us expanding our, our market, I think you're going to see us look sort of farther down market than up market.
0: Interesting. Okay, in that direction, who do you see as competitors then? Your uh, your your vanguards, your Schwabs, uh, Fidelity. I mean, uh, they also are rolling out planning. They do have call center advisors, which uh, you know they would probably bristle a bit to the calling them call center advisors. But yes, that's <laughs> they are. You know, where do you where do you see competition on you know your expansion plans?
1: So I actually would look more towards uh, pure technology companies. So like the mints or the true bills or the credit cards of the world. You know, I, I think that those are the companies that in their current iterations have tried to build um, pure technology, consumed products. And, um, and it's hard. I mean, th- there's so much nuance and complexity in like real financial planning. And, in, and if you're really getting into the weeds of someone's, Financial lives; it's almost impossible to build a a truly automated uh, uh, solution without any kind of human intervention. And so, you know, so for us, I think you know, being tech first, but having a human in the background. And again, you know, for the lower market, uh, uh, the lower cost products, it might be a very, very light human touch. Um, But, but you know, that I think is still going to be a critical component. Just to understand the nuance of. What's going on in someone's life? I think we're a long way away from being able to to truly automate all of it.
0: Yeah, you say that you know, you, you don't manage assets, uh, or you only fifty percent of your clients are are you know have no assets to manage. I guess through you, uh, uh, what are the fifty percent who are, what uh, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so we actually we we do manage assets. We have more than a billion under management. Actually, ironically, we we got there faster than any of the robos, the, you know, the wealth fronts, the betterments, the personal capitals of the world. Um, and and we've, we've never put it sort of front and center as our, as our value prop. But um, th- that to us is a you know, very sort of low cost, uh, globally diversified uh, passive indexing approach that's really focused more on market participation and cost reduction we don't do any kind of active management. You know, we we are sort of exploring. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the asset management world. I mean, crypto is obviously a big one um, that comes up. You know, I think 54 million Americans own some version of a cryptocurrency. So that one's getting harder and harder to ignore, even if it's not going to become a central part of our uh, asset management strategy. And then uh, and then also kind of self directed. We're, we're getting, I think, increasing questions about. When you know when when can we have a sort of brokerage offering through through facets? So, you know, so th- those are some of the things that are kind of coming down the pike. But you know, for the for the time being, you know, we, we keep it uh, fairly simple and, and straightforward for our 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 clients.
0: A, a basket of Vanguard ETFs, or
1: basically, yeah, a Vanguard BlackRock.
0: Yeah, intriguing about crypto. What would you uh, look at there? Who would you look to partner with somebody there or build something internally?
1: It's so it's still such early days for us. Um, it, I, I, I honestly don't even know, and that's not me being coy. We just haven't done the work. It, it's you know our our position on crypto right now is that if it's something that you are interested in, uh, you know, go for it. Our job is to make sure that the rest of your financial life is in order, so that you know if the if and when the volatility hits, you know, you're not going to be left destitute. I think you know sort of figuring out how to how to build that into a uh, some sort of offering as part of our portfolios will be an interesting exercise for us to, to to go through. We did sort of laugh, you know, as we went through this fundraising process that you know, if we had a crypto offering, even if we just said yeah, yeah, we help our clients with crypto, you know, our valuation would probably have been like 10x what uh, you know <laughs> what it was. But um,
0: yeah, well that's chasing the shiny shiny object.
1: Oh yeah, exactly.
0: Well, anything else uh, surprised you when you spoke to uh, potential investors when you were making this last round? I mean, any questions that came up that either thought provoking or questions that maybe led you to believe that folks don't really still get this industry uh, as well as they should, or what any any surprises?
1: I think it's an interesting. It's an interesting question. I think you know it's always interesting to go through a fundraising process, and you know this is the third sort of real round that we've done, and. and it's always it's always a really interesting exercise to go through and understand what it is that the market is valuing at any uh, moment in time. Mm-hmm. And you know we sort of hit hit the market at an inflection point around I think the last two years have been or or you know two plus years have all been about uh, growth basically at all costs. You know the more the faster you grow, it almost doesn't matter what the rest of your economics look like just as long as you're you're showing top line growth. And I think, you know, obviously the equity, the the public markets have taken a bit of a hit in the last couple of months. And, you know, I think the sort of feedback coming from that has been uh, growth is now less important than having a, you know, really capital efficient business. And so I think we're starting to see the world kind of turn in that direction. And, you know, it certainly influenced some of our plans around how we're thinking about the upcoming year or, or two years, but um but yeah, it, it's, just, it's always interesting to sort of put a foot in the market and see, you know, see what's being valued because it changes all, all the time. So, so that was sort of one sort of interesting observation and, and interesting to sort of, you know, start the process in in one paradigm and end it in another. And then, you know, I think the other thing too is just, it's you know, th- there's sort of two sets of investors that are interested in the industry. There are those that are more what I would describe as like private equity, you know, thinking about sort of the cash flow aspects of an RIA business with very sticky customers and healthy margins. And then there are those that are more disruptive saying, okay, well, you know, there's a a sort of trend across industries of fragmented uh, industries consolidating around one or two dominant digital players. And we're looking to back the sort of winner of that that race, and so you get two very different perspectives when you talk to to those two types of investors, and obviously two very different risk profiles, and certainly two sets of things that are, are two sets of sort of operating criteria that you know are, are quite different.
0: Can you characterize at all your trajectory with the the most recent raise? I mean, is it a, an IPO eventually? Is it a, a sale to a, a larger company? What uh, what can you tell us?
1: I, so I think for us, this, the sale option is largely off the table at this point. Um, you know, the, the firm that led our, our round, uh, the, this last round, is a durable capital. They're primarily a public market investor. Um, Henry Ellenbogen, the, the founder and chief investment officer there, uh, came from Tiro Price, where he led their Small cap growth. The new Horizons fund. Their small cap growth fund. Actually, funny, funny coincidence. Like when I was in college, I actually interned for that fund, and it was before Henry managed it. So it was, but it's just kind of funny how these oh. things come come full circle. But um, small world. In any event, so uh, so so that they, they are they do limited private market investing, but sort of with the you know with, with the thinking that that the companies they invest in the private market uh, will go public. So that's sort of the trajectory that we're on, and, and how we see. Things going, you know. Obviously, who knows what the future holds? You can never predict the future, and um, and so it's it's hard to say exactly, you know, when and how that will all take place. You know, I've also heard that being a public company CEO is really not that much fun. So, uh, you know, I'll probably try and prolong it as long as possible. But uh, you know, we'll 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 see how it all shakes out. But I I think the big takeaway is that we're very focused on becoming a uh, a generational company and being around for a long time and and joining the ranks of the Fidelities and the Schwabs of the world. And so, you know, so whatever our capital structure is at any given point in time, it's, it's really going to be about supporting that longer term vision.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Uh, I've kept you longer than I intended to, Anders. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on the, the equity raise and uh, keep up the good work. We'll, we'll be watching.
1: Thanks. It was great to, uh, great to reconnect.
0: And this is David Armstrong. You've been listening to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.